Dotnet Rocks episode 671 with guest Paul Bone. Recorded live Friday, June 3rd, 2011. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's your .NET podcast. The .NET podcast. That's what we like. That sounds kind of vain, doesn't it? Because there is a lot of .NET podcasts. There is a few. Yeah, we sound good, though. We do something right. Something. Hey, man, what's up? Not too much. You know, summer's finally showing up. It's getting warm around here. The barbecues have been dragged out. It's time to cook meat and drink beer. Hey, did you see that uh, cookbook from Grape City? Yes, I did. Hey, we're in it. I think they're selling it. So here, here's what Grape City did. They got a bunch of .NET gurus together and asked them for recipes. Richard has two recipes in there. I've got one. And also a lot of guests that have been on .NET Rocks, people that you know that you go see speak and all of that kind of stuff. So I think you can get them at GrapeCity.com. But they're a lot of fun and good food, too. Wow. Your paella was ridiculous. <laughs> it's a bit of work to make, but it's a, it's a good piece when you're done. Hey, let's get started with Better Know a Framework. I love it. And today we're not knowing a framework. We're knowing a project at CodePlex. Ah, uh, yeah. I'm on a roll here, man. You're liking it, are you? MediaCompanion.CodePlex.com. Media oh. Companion is the original free-to-use movie manager and organizer that offers full XBMC integration. I don't even know what that means. Nice. It sounds important. Simply put, Media Companion offers the facility to gather information from the internet and make this information available to you in an organized manner. The information collected includes such things as posters, backdrops, plot summary, actors, and actor images, ratings, etc. So what's cool about this is because it's source code, you can learn, you can see the code to scrape movie information from IMDb, you know, to, to, to search the internet for this kind of data. And it shows you where to get it and how. Nice. It's kind of cool. And also for TV shows. So, and it's had, let's see, what do we got for downloads? In the last seven days, uh, about a thousand downloads. Hmm. And eight ratings, uh, almost five stars. Nice. People like it. Yeah. They like it. Richard, who's talking to us? I've got an email here from Jeremy Huppets. And oh, he yeah. says, uh, gentlemen, and there's a stretch for you. Yeah. I'm writing to you guys to thank you for your ongoing efforts to keep schlubs like me informed on what's going on in the .NET community and for being an inspiration to me at both a professional and personal level. Whoa. Nice. That, that's a, that's a great name for a band, the schlubs. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. In the last eight months, I've finally stepped away from being a full-time permanent salaryman to hanging out a shingle and running my own consultancy. 
A big factor in making that decision was the inspiration I took away from Show 368, in which Carl and Mark Dunn spoke to Steve Smith about making the jump from permanent employee to small business operator. That's a while back, that show. It's like 300 shows ago. I don't even think you were there. No, I wasn't. That was one of the ones where I was away and you and, and went with Mark and, and talked to Steve. Yep. As a result of that move, I've developed a newfound sense of self-respect. And in the next two weeks, I will have successfully completed my first consulting project, an enterprise-grade customer management data warehouse built on SQL Server 2008 R2, including elements of SSIS, SSAS, and SSRS. Life is looking great. And now I'm seriously looking at next steps. For me, that will be a move to split my time between working in IT to pay the bills and starting to move into a field I'm truly passionate about. Now that I'm in a house that offers me some elbow room, I'm able to make effective use of the home recording gear I've accumulated over the past 10 years by producing some of my own tunes, getting some bands through for recordings, and completing a formal qualification as an audio engineer at SAE. That's awesome. I'm also looking at closing the IT dev music loop by creating a .NET infrastructure-based software solution that handles assets and workflow management for Cakewalk's Sonar X1 production solution and looking to see if I can integrate that into Pro Tools as well. Wow. Carl's career as an initially reluctant IT guy who finally moved back to his first love, making music with talented people, has been a major source of motivation for me in this area, and I'm truly grateful that I discovered .NET Rocks now send me a mug, damn it. I just for the record, I may have been a reluctant IT guy, but I was a fully exuberant developer. <laughs> <laughs> totally engaged. Yeah. It did the funny thing is it tickles your brain the same way music does. Totally. It's that that concept of mastery that you nothing is ever perfect. It can only get better. Yeah. And the creative aspect, the abstract aspect of it. Yeah. And you know, I used to love putting together PCs, and I still do. I still do. I still love going to Newegg and buying all the pieces and it all comes in a box and it's like Christmas. Right. You open it up and you spend a couple hours and nowadays they just work. But man, back in the day, there were some serious. You remember when motherboards didn't fit in cases? Right. They were just like off by millimeters and the screws didn't fit. It's maddening. But, you know. Standards being what they are, stuff just works now. These things have evolved. Yeah. Well, Jeremy, thanks so much for your email. We're inspired back, man. I'm glad it's working for you. And we'll send you a mug down to Australia. Absolutely. And if you've got questions, concerns, ideas for shows, you can send us an email, .netrocks at franklins.net, or post up on our fancy new website at .netrocks.com. We love comments on shows, and heck, even the uh, the guests will comment back. In a perfect world. Well, Richard, I'm very excited because our guest today is none other than Paul Bone. Paul is a PhD student at the University of Melbourne in Australia. He works on Mercury a purely declarative logic programming language. And we'll find out what that is in a minute. His PhD thesis topic is the automatic parallelization of Mercury programs. A paper describing Paul's recent work is due to appear in Theory and Practice of Logic Programming. He'll be presenting this paper at the International Conference of Logic Programming to be held in Lexington, Kentucky in July. And Paul is also, and you're going to love this, Check out this, a visually impaired downhill skier. Yikes. All right, so you're crazy. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah, well, my wife my wife uh, said that she's too 
uh, too sane to do a PhD herself, so it's just the one, just me. So I'm crazy enough to take on a PhD and to ski. Right. Man, I'm a skiing-impaired downhill skier. That's what I am. <laughs> I tried, you know, I got Ski Baba, you know, the little beginner slope, and then the next one I went to was like the jaws of death, and I went down on my face the whole way. It was yep. great. Anyway. Uh, if you're not falling down, you're not trying hard enough, so that's good. <laughs> well, Paul, my very first question is, um, you make a, in the, all the documentations, you draw a line between the difference between logic programming languages and imperative programming languages. So what's the difference? So um, those two aren't necessarily opposites, but they're often not associated together. Okay. Um, it's more that imperative and declarative are thought of as opposites. All right. So most of your listeners are probably familiar with imperative programming if this is you tell the computer what to do and you usually tell it um, a sequence of instructions and then you might use something like and if then else to say you well if this condition then do that thing and so on and you write loops for loops and so on mm -hmm. and that's called imperative programming in declarative programming the programmer doesn't tell the computer how to solve the problem but it just tells them just tells the computer what the problem is um, and yeah. often those descriptions are recursive, and so loop, looping is done through through recursion. Now, I, I, you know, when people think of declarative languages, probably in the .NET space, we think of XML, XAML. Uh, those are the kinds of declarative things that we deal with all the time, and they're looking more and more like languages just because by expressing something in this declarative language, something happens. But uh, so is this essentially what you're talking about? Just not action and logic flow, but actual... I mean, why is it called a logic programming language then? Okay, so the logic part of that description, logic and declarative are often associated together. A logic programming language is one that's rather than built out of statements and expressions... Mm. Um, it's built out of logical goals. So the when it executes, it tries to prove these goals. Um, for instance, a goal might be somebody is somebody else's grandparent, and to satisfy that goal, somebody has, you find a parent who is the child of the grandparent, but the parent of the of the um, of the first child. <laughs> yeah, I get um, it. Yeah, so it's... So you give it a series of givens and then things that it has to prove, and it figures out how to prove it? Yeah, it's built up out of what's called horn clauses. So you say the thing that it can prove, mm -hmm. and then you say the, the things that that can be made up from. So whether they're a conjunction of other goals or a disjunction of other goals, and you can include if-then-elses and things in there like that. So what kinds of applications is this type of language and Mercury in particular really good for? What what kind of problems does it solve the best? So when people think of logic programming, they often think of Prolog, um, which was, a, I believe it was originally developed to help people with natural language processing. Yeah, that's a blast from the past. That's from the 80s, way back yeah. in the 80s. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and, um, and so that's often what it's 
been used for in the past, but we've found that logic programming in, is generally useful for any writing any types of programs. Um, our Mercury compiler is written in Mercury, uh, for mm. instance. Um, How recursive of you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. This is, this is called self-hosting, when your language can compile its compiler. Right, yeah. So, and, and Mercury's been self-hosting for, I think, 15 years now. I've got it written down here. Yeah, 15 years of self-hosting. Wow. So, it's, it's quite an old project. It was started 17 years ago. So, I, let's get back to what kinds of problems can it solve best. I'm still not figuring this out. Yeah, so it's, we use Mercury for general purpose programming. It's just that a lot of what a programmer is doing is logical. So, we find that a programming language that, that shows them that logic of what they're writing helps a lot in general. Are we talking about line of business applications? Are we talking about scientific calculations? Uh, scientific calculations aren't Mercury's forte, but certainly business applications are. Um, a, we know of people using Mercury as a business rules engine so to, um, to build up rules uh, about different conditions. Say the client is is uh, retired and uh, has a home of this size. Therefore, this insurance package is suitable for them. Oh, I like see. That. So it's good for sort of querying data, would you say? Yeah, it, it is good for that. So, but I'm, uh, I guess the message I'm trying to say is that it's good for almost everything. Yeah. This is a general purpose language, although yes. I don't think most developers think about parallel execution in their day-to-day general-purpose programming. Yeah, so that's something I'd like to come to. We've, because of how Mercury is organized, we're able to automatically parallelize programs written in Mercury. I see. So the idea is that the programmer doesn't need to know it's executing in parallel. It's just going to happen. Yes, yeah. So I mean, the programmer can say, please make it execute in parallel, but they don't have to know how. Right. When you use an optimizing compiler, you you tell the compiler to optimize your program harder. Um, it's exactly the same principle. Okay. And where does functional programming fit into this? So Mercury also supports functional programming in that right. the some of the basic concepts that Mercury has are predicates and functions. Yeah. So, um, and a function is a predicate that's can only succeed in one way. Um, it only has one answer for any set of inputs. So let's let let's break this down a little bit for the non-functional, non-logical programmer listeners out there. Uh, let's go let's go down to brass tacks here. Predicate, define that for me. Okay, so a predicate. I mentioned earlier the horn clause where you say yeah. uh, this thing is true if these parts of it are also true. Mm. Um, that can also be uh, almost thought of as a predicate. It's simple enough to say that it is a predicate. Um, and um, so a predicate is something that you can prove to be true for its parameters. The grandparent example I used earlier, so a grandparent would take two parameters, the child and the grandparent, um, 
and grandparent is true for for valid pairs of those arguments. But it doesn't talk about whether it's computing the child from knowing that their grandparent is Jim or whether it's computing that the grandparent is Jim when the child is Paul. Wow, I must be stupid. I still don't know what a predicate is. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, it hard, is very difficult define. to explain without yeah. pictures. Right. So, so it's a slit. Let me just try to regurgitate what I heard. Uh, so it's a set of conditions that can prove something or a set of givens that can prove something? Kind of. It's a predicate is a piece of code that's true. Um, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Really hard talking about code sometimes, isn't it? Yeah. Let me go look up and see what uh, yeah. So it's so some, it's somebody else says here. Based on the I mean, predicates in logic are you know, statements that are true or false, depending on what their values are. Here's what Wikipedia says. Predicate logic. Uh, predicate logic is the generic term for symbolic formal systems like first order logic, second order logic. Uh, that doesn't help. This formal system is distinguished from other systems in that its formulae contain variables which can be quantified. That's all true. Two common quantifiers are the existential, there exists, in quotes, and universal, for all, in quotes, quantifiers. Yep. Yeah, still don't know what a predicate is. So, if yeah, okay. for all grandparents, there is a grandchild. Okay. And if, if grandchild equals Bobby, then grandparent equals Jim. Okay. Yes. But Bobby may have more than one grandparent. Right. He may have um, uh, Grandma Nancy. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the pair, like, grandparent of Bobby and Nancy would also be true. Mm Mm-hmm. If you were to have a call to grandparent that specified Jim as the first argument and specified some X for the second argument, it would return either Jim or Nancy or Jim... And then Nancy, when the code executed a second time for whatever reason. Okay. Because because both these things are true. Well, and you get the hint of parallelism there that when you simply refer to the grandparents of Jim, however many there are, is irrelevant and it could easily execute in parallel. Hmm. That's true. That's what's called or parallelism because you're looking at a, a what's... Because when you build up how grandparent works, you might either follow the mother or father link in the family tree, right? Um, and those things are disjunctive. So it's it's known as uh, or parallelism because of the disjunction there. Yep. And I've lost you again. Oh yeah. So all <laughs> built out of <laughs> great. And I'm sure our listeners are going <laughs> on their heads too. Some of them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know. Um, Maybe it's just me. I hope we can cut a fair bit of this. <laughs> oh, no, it's good fun. <laughs> yep. Um, all right. So uh, I also see from Wikipedia, which, of course, is the answer source of all truth, um, that it's sometimes called first order logic. Is that also true? Predicate logic. That's also true. Yeah. 
So although Mercury supports um, higher order logic as well. So it looks like it's a it's a logical statement that com- that contains variables, the outcome of which is not known until those variables are set. But the logic yeah. is true no matter what. Does that is that right? Yeah. Oh that, my god. Right. Oh my god. Yeah. I learned something. <laughs> oh. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. Hey, can you ever have too many free tools to complement your development skills? I didn't think so. So our friends at Telerik are giving you now more than 30 free products for application development, automated testing, agile project management, and content management. And we're talking free-free. Not a trial, not a demo, but free, complete products supported by a community of over 440,000 developers at Telerik Forums. From free ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, and Silverlight controls, to the free ORM solution and automated testing framework, to free agile management tools and content management systems, all of these and more are available to you for immediate download at Telerik.com slash free stuff. Most of the free products can be used for commercial purposes and give you access to supplemental support resources such as documentation and forms. Go to Telerik.com slash free stuff now and take full advantage of the available free of charge products. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. You'll be relieved to know that most Mercury programs don't actually use all of these features. Okay. Most of them are very simple and they're what's called deterministic. Okay. So that means that unlike Bobby, who has up to four grandparents, um, it means that for any given input, there's exactly one answer. So right. he has, so, um, not using the family example, um, let's say you use the example of my whole program. So the, the first predicate that the Mercury runtime system calls when it starts your program is the main predicate. Okay. Which runs your whole program just like in C. And main is true um, for for a valid execution of your program. And there's only, in a deterministic program, there's only one valid execution. Right. This is like the square root of nine will always return three. I see. Right. As opposed to a non-deterministic function like what is the time? (laughs) That's right. Which each time you ask it, you get back a different value. Yeah. Yeah. If you were to give it the parameter of, I'm asking you now, when you asked what is the time, for that value of now, there's still only one answer. Right. Which is how we get around um, the problem of opening a file on the disk or reading input from the user and so on. So, because if I open the file on the disk, it might exist. But then right. if I close it again and open it later, somebody might have deleted it in the meantime, and mm. that would be a different result. Sure. Hmm. But for what looks like the same inputs. So to avoid those problems and actually be able to program practically, we pass around what we call uh, the I.O. state, which represents the world outside the program. Yeah. It's your nowness. Yep. And so if you don't see the variable in the program you know that it can have no effect on the outside world, which is a really lovely thing for debugging. Whoa, what a really strange and beautiful way to program. I mean, it's sort of sinking in. 
that it's a totally different way to think about it, about how to interact yeah. with a computer. Yeah, it's only it's only penetrating me to the point where I'm just getting chills about it. Yeah, I'm I'm with you, buddy. I'm with you. Uh, and I think uh, you know a lot of C sharp VBnet, you know, business developers that listen to the show, um, sort of hopefully feel that same twinge of uh, I'm beginning to get it. Yeah. I can I run through another example? I, oh yeah. My favorite. Yeah. So my favorite example is the random number generator. Everybody knows that you call, I, mean, I don't know C, C sharp, but I know okay. C. In C, you'd call Rand with no right. parameters, and you keep getting back different numbers. Right. For that to be able to work, what we have to do is pass it the current state of the random number generator. And when it returns, it not only gives you your random number, but it has to give you the new state of the random number generator, which you'd use next time. Hmm. Next time you call it. The... Um what I know about random number generators is they're not random. They're based on some number, usually a number of ticks that have happened since a certain you know time, which is a number that's big and changes all the time. Scrambled up, moved around, mathematized, etc. And that's used as a seed to generate a pseudo random number but random number yeah you know, and I, I know yep. that it's a very academic thing that people will say oh that's not random yeah yeah because if the that, seed that, is the same you're going to get the same number through the random number generator and each time you call rand the state or the seed changes yeah so but of course if you want something to change in declarative in purely declarative programming you um you have to be able to see it, see a variable for it in the source code that you're writing. Mm. Otherwise, you know that it can't possibly change. Right. So you have to see the state of the random number generator being passed around. I see. So this is really cool when you start working with data structures. Uh, if you're managing a dictionary and you insert an item into a dictionary, what you get back is a, is a new dictionary. The old one can still exist. Um, and then you start working with the new dictionary. You might want to delete a different item out of the dictionary, mm. and you'll do that. Um, and the the previous versions of the dictionary still exist in memory. Right. So they're immutable. Uh, yeah. And much of the memory between them is actually shared, like the items themselves, and often much of the structure of the dictionary. And so this becomes really cool when you want to implement undo. All you have oh, to do is revert. Sure. Because everything's still there. But this is also yeah. part and parcel with best practices for parallelism because as soon as memory is mutable, you now have race conditions yeah. and, and blocking and so forth to protect memory. If it's immutable, you're just writing new copies of things so there's no conflict between multiple threads executing on it. And copying all that data, you know, memory is cheap, right? But does it get expensive when those data structures are huge? It. Not when the data structures are huge, but when you make many, many uh, modifications to the data uh, very quickly. That's when, uh, because often when you make a small modification to a lot of data, it only makes that, it only allocates a few cells. For oh, instance, sure. For, for, if you've got a binary tree and you delete or insert a new item, on average it only modifies or reallocates um, n uh, no, log n items in the tree. Mm. 
So, so that which is means much smaller than the amount of memory that the tree uses anyway. So that means even though it's immutable and you get a you get a new collection, the items in that collection are still shared. Yes. Yeah. So it's really that's the right. metadata about the collection, the list that's immutable. Yep. Hmm. Well, that's not even mutable. You get a new version of the collection, and you can still see the old collection. Yeah. You've still got a reference to it if you want to keep that old reference around. If you let go of the old reference, the garbage collector will come, will get it. I see. Now, also, in Mercury is a kind of a weird idea, but uh, very curious to find out how it works. Declarative debugging. Yeah. So that works using these same ideas. Because nothing in memory has ever changed, and you have to, for something to have changed, you need to explicitly be able to see it in the program, so all state is explicit, um, then any node in your call graph represents that part of the program, like that sub-call graph of the program. Um, if you're still with me? Okay. Yeah, you, I mean, are you following so far? Yep. So if the debugger can ask the programmer, hey, see this node in the call graph, does it look good to you? And the programmer can say yes or no. That will, if the programmer says uh, no, that node in the call graph, there's a problem, then, the, then an automatic tool, what we call a declarative debugger, can search below that node in the call graph to its children. It's the things it calls, right? Um, and ask the same question of those, um, and this can help the programmer um, find where their bug is. So essentially, they're stepping backwards through all those iterations till so they find when things made sense, and the transition from when they made sense to when they didn't is where the bug lives. So that's a very nice way to pinpoint problems. Yeah. What we'd like to do, I don't know if we've... Um, I know that somebody's worked on this in the past, but I don't know how complete support for this is. But if you've got a test suite, and let's say you've got a 1,000 tests, which is, which is pretty normal, mm -hmm. um, you might have some that pass and some that fail. And if you know, if you have coverage data for each of those tests, and you can weight nodes in the call graph by... The, whether the test that executes them passes or fails or passes more often than it fails and so on, you know more data about where your bug is and you don't necessarily need to ask the programmer so often, do you think the bug is in this part of the program? Right. So, I mean, I'd like to see these programs debug themselves and it they should be able to probably do 90% of the debugging themselves. But then, yeah, your declarative part would be basically identifying the intended state at each of the iterations. Yeah, so that's something that an automatic program can never do. But if right. it had statistical test suite, it has an idea about which things lead to a working, which things lead to the right result and which things lead to the wrong one. Mm -hmm. Wild. Yeah, no, I'm getting into this weird recursive thought yeah. here where I'm like, well, if you know where my bugs are, why don't you just write the code in the first place? That's right. <laughs> what do you need me for? Yeah. Yeah, and see, that's it. Because the the whole uh, philosophy behind this is that you only need to tell the, pro the computer 
what the problem is that you're trying to solve and not how to solve it. Right. That is so. Weird. So that goes back to that idea. Well, yeah, and so then the declarative debugging part of this is saying, this is what I, the solution I expected you to get. Figure out where you went wrong, because that is not the solution you gave me. That would be great, yeah. So I think we're, we're not there yet, but. What is automatic parallelism? So, yeah, this is the main part of my research, um, but. First, I'd like to, so we saw earlier that without side effects, without, um, that it's easy, we saw that, that it's very easy to determine if, um, if running two things in parallel is safe because we can see what dependencies they have on one another mm-hmm. and, and what can, whether state can change when they're not expecting it and so on, and therefore whether it's safe to run them in parallel or not. So determining whether something is safe is trivial in Mercury. And the hard part is determining what things should be run in parallel to make the program more efficient. So when you say it's trivial to determine if something is safe, does the safetiness of, um, of of a variable, an object, whatever you call them, does that change as the program changes? Or is it known from the beginning? It's known It's known during compile time. Okay. So it's even something that the programmer can look at the source code and see very obviously. So you have this parallel conjunction operator, the ampersand? And yes. that's... So a conjunction, that's a in, conjoining two things together? Yep. So in the grandparent example that we were using, that has to find whether, let's say, to prove that X is Z's grandparent, it has to find some Y, which is the grandparent, which is the the first parent of X. Okay. And then find a Z, which is the first parent of Y. Right. You could, so those two calls to parents are conjoined. You have to satisfy both of them in order to satisfy grandparent. Right. So that, which is what we mean by conjunction. Okay. So a parallel conjunction is just one that says try and prove both these things at the same time. Hmm. I'm not it's, worried about what order they execute in. Yeah. Hmm. But that's declarative parallelism. I mean, that's clearly the developer saying you can do this in parallel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, but it's it's very the benefit there is that the programmer doesn't need to worry about locking. Yeah, no memory protection, no mutexes, none of that stuff. So automatic parallelism then uh, avoids the problem of the programmer having to know what to use, you know, what, where to optimize. That's exactly right. right. So when many programmers are asked to optimize their programs, they, many, uh, the smart programmers reach for profilers because People know that programmers aren't very good at picking, at naming the parts of their program mm. that contribute the most to its execution, like mm. the slowest parts that are worth optimizing. Right. So we use profilers to show us what things should I optimize. Yeah, where is my program spending its time? Exactly. 
Because by usually by looking at one percent of the program and optimizing that, you can get ninety percent of the benefit or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Pareto's law applies. Yeah. So what we want to do is use the same concepts for parallelizing programs because parallelism is essentially an optimization. Right. So, but rather than it's difficult for the compiler to know which parts are going to be slower than others. That's why we need to use a profiler here. So the programmer would compile their program for profiling, run it on some test data, which would give them a profile, and they can give that profile to our automatic parallelization tool. Wow. Um, that tool will be able to look at the profile of the program and understand where the hotspots are. Um, and find places where there are two or more things uh, that can be done in parallel and that are costly enough to be worthwhile doing in parallel. Because there is an overhead to parallelism, and if it doesn't really give you much benefit, it'll actually slow things down. Yeah, there is such a thing as too much of a good thing. Yeah, if you parallelize too much of your program, I mean, you've got a four-core, eight-core machine. Mm -hmm. Um, If you parallelize too much of it, you'll have 1,000 or more independent little tasks to do and only eight cores to do them on. Right. And your and your processors are going to spend most of their time context switching to execute each of those tasks than they are actually doing the work. Exactly. So I mean, what people have done, I mean, parallel automatic parallelism has been a research topic in the past. Uh, as you said, Prolog was well back in the 80s and people were looking at this then. Mm-hmm. Um, but the mistake that a lot of people made was to parallelize too much of the program. We want to parallelize only a couple of places, but only the places that give you the most benefit. At Franklin's Net right now, you can get a DVD with over 11 hours of Billy Hollis on Silverlight 4 or 14 hours of Sahil Malik on SharePoint 2010, each for only six ninety-five. Order online at www.franklins.net. Are you looking to change jobs? Infusion Development has offices in New York City, Toronto, London, Dubai, and Poland. Infusion has hired a whole handful of Happy.net Rocks listeners. Contact me for an introduction at carl at franklins.net. Well, the other thing is in the 80s, multiple core machines were incredibly rare and expensive. You only had one core, and it was a pretty simple one at that, and parallelism just didn't do much for you. Not in the consumer field, there were some heavier, heavy iron servers that had many cores. Right. Times eight or but they were they weren't cores; they were whole chips or whole cards. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm I'm speaking beyond my years there. But yeah, I just think this has become so much more relevant because you know Intel shipping experimental quantities of eighty core processors in one chip. Yeah, I. I asked Intel for a 48-core chip, and they said no. Ah, uh, ah, oh, <laughs> papers. But yeah, that would have been an awesome test bed. You guys aren't cool enough for a 48-core chip? Because this is pretty cool. <laughs> well, we actually looked at the 48-core chip and found that it didn't have um, any hardware-level um, cache uh, coherence mechanisms. Right. Which means that the way Mercury is written at the moment, especially the garbage collector, which is we've borrowed the Bohm garbage collector, which is a popular conservative garbage collector for C, um, 
those the the bone garbage collector and the mercury runtime are written to assume that the machine has um, some kind of cache coherence. Um, and not programming without a cache coherence is is more than difficult. So it's something that we'd need a couple of years to get ready for. Case coherence? Is that what you said? Cash. Cache. Oh, cache. Oh, right. yeah, sorry. American people say cash. Yeah. yeah. In Australia, we say cache. Okay. <laughs> so That's uh, radical, yeah. dode. right so one of the big challenges when you actually start to execute things in parallel is that the debugging gets so much more complex yeah well the debugging because parallelism is deterministic in mercury debugging Mm -hmm. isn't an issue not for the correct not for getting the correct result out of your program but to make sure that it executes efficiently uh, is is difficult. There's interesting tools in the latest version of Visual Studio that help you see whether you're really executing effectively in parallel. Just that did the task get broken up? Did more than one thing run at the same time? Even if they four things ran at once, did three of them wait around while one of them finished? I mean, that whole thing can be visualized in a profiler. Yeah, that's exactly right. So this is where I hoped you were going. So we've um, borrowed... Uh, for the lack of a better word, a visual profiler that's been developed for Haskell, for parallel Haskell programs. Nice. Um, and this was convenient because uh, Haskell's runtime system um, is similar to ours. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've been able to adapt it to work with Mercury. That's very cool. We've never given a lot of love to Haskell. Uh, yeah, well, be- we did. We did a show on Haskell, did we not? Yeah, the problem is it just hasn't surfaced at all in the .NET space. I mean, Mercury at least has a a C sharp library of some kind. But Bing! I, you just said the magic word. I was wondering yeah. what was the connection between .NET and Mercury. Yes. So if you want, you can tell the Mercury compiler rather than to generate C code or Java code, which it supports. You can tell it to generate C sharp code, which then it will use the Microsoft tools to compile. Wow. I haven't done now, how, this myself. How? How does... How do you get from a functional declarative language to an imperative expression? Um, the Mercury compiler just decides how, to, how best to execute your code. It's the same way we go about generating C code. So is it going to use threads and... Yeah. It is. So it, will use, it will use the... I'm not sure in .NET. Does .NET... I've used threading in Java. Is it similar to that in which you spawn a thread object? Yep. Yeah. Well, there's there's a lot of great new parallel tools in .NET as well, and I would hope that it would use some of that stuff, like the task library. Yeah, but I'm betting that's too new for this. It might be too new. So if our, there's a thread library in our standard... There's a thread module in our standard library, um, which if that supports C-sharp's threading stuff, then you're good to go. You unfortunately don't get the use of parallel conjunctions, but you do get to use um, more explicit parallelism. So the the parallel conjunction operator and the automatic paralleliza- parallelization 
is only supported on the low-level C backend, unfortunately. Okay. So I'm sorry to disappoint your no, audience. No, no, that's all right. What? Um, yeah, I know. I know this sounds like I'm just asking the same question, but give me some more practical uses that a line of business developer can take Mercury, generate C sharp code, and generate code that's cleaner and better than something they could have written themselves. We're ta- are we talking mostly middle tier code here? Yeah, that that would be where I'd use it. Um, we know of. I know of a business that uh, uses Mercury in order to interface with both Java and .NET code. So they may have their clients uh, may have libraries that are written in Java and .NET, and then they've written, like I said before, it's their business rules engine where they choose which insurance or which uh, plan, like a mobile phone plan, a customer is eligible or best suited for. Yeah. Using and and that uh, that engine is written in Mercury, um, huh. but then they want to integrate that with the software that the that the uh, company already has, which may be either in .NET or in Java. Um, so this is um, this is mission critical. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know if you've heard of them. Um, no, I and haven't. But they've the C sharp backend is actually their work. So they've contributed that to Mercury. Well, that's actually this this company that's been using it wanted to have it work in IL, and so they went to the trouble of actually building it themselves. Hmm. Well, they built the C sharp backend. Previous to that, we did have a .NET IL backend. Oh, I see. Um, which was a separate project. Uh, the Mercury project was given a grant by Microsoft to build that. Um, unfortunately, now the .NET intermediate language has moved on in versions, and so we're no longer compatible. Oh, and I there's see. No, there's nobody currently maintaining that, so it's it's not useful at the moment because .NET has moved on. So the old IL version that you had is broken, but the C-sharp version works. That's right. Okay. So, And the idea of um, the we chose to use C-sharp in the second version rather than a newer IL version because C-sharp is less likely to change as Microsoft. Yeah. yeah, you don't get caught out with the same problem, it'll get broken again. Exactly. Right. So, I mean, they want to keep C-sharp the same because that way people can still use their programs. That they've right. Written early. Um, so it makes sense to, to, to be compatible with C-sharp rather than IL. I guess the question is, why would I use this over the TAS parallel library or any of the new .NET 4.0 parallelism features? And and I think uh, I think you're probably not going to really understand that until you get your hands on it and yeah, actually I'd see some code. Yeah, I'd have to see those tools. Um, so I'm I'm tentatively guessing those tools are probably great if you know that your that your problem the problem you're trying to solve decomposes well for parallel execution. Say it's um, image manipulation or or ray tracing or something like that, um, that decomposes well, you're probably best off using a library like that. Mm-hmm. Um, where Mercury's auto-parallelism is good is where it's not obvious to the programmer how they should parallelize something. Mm. Mm. Um, and that, that's the problem we try and solve. It's, it's not productive to 
give programmers tools that are equivalent to those that they already have. Yeah. So what we're building here is is something that does data data flow parallelism. So the goal um, is automated parallelism always. Yeah. And so it shouldn't matter what the shape of your computation looks like to the automatic parallelization tool. It shouldn't and be the operative if word. Your program in the future and the and the, the way it would get parallelized changes, you just rerun the analysis tool and it's parallelized again without you having to do any effort to update it. Now, is this actually your PhD thesis, is how this is going to happen? That's right. The question is, are you going to get your PhD? <laughs> well, whether I succeed or not, um, I believe that I'll be successful in getting a PhD. I may be able to prove why this is why doing this is impossible. Right. Yeah. And then save other researchers the time of looking at it. Uh, um, I don't think that's likely. Right. But that's... It's certainly, it's something that could happen. You know, the quest, the quest for truth and understanding is wonderful when you know that if, whether you succeed or fail, you succeed. <laughs> yeah. Because either way, you learn something new. So. That's right. The research is about finding out something that nobody on this earth knew before. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's the thing that makes my spine tingle. Yeah. So, absolutely. Contributing yeah. to the science. Yeah, that's it. So, Tell us about the a little bit about the ICLP 2011. What is that event again? That's the International Conference of Logic Programming. It's held in Lexington, Kentucky, this year. What what kinds of things go on at a at a logic conference? Yeah, so this is very much an academic conference. Um, people will bring their papers about different ideas in logic programming um, and and related fields mm-hmm. um, and and present them there. So um, I'll be presenting my work that I've done on trying to calculate whether a particular parallelization is beneficial or not. Yeah. Um, due to dependencies between the parallel tasks. So. Do you ever get the feeling your brain's just going to explode? <laughs> Actually, no. No. The more and more it, it I tickles. Try, it feels good. The more I realize I don't know. <laughs> there's, yeah, there's yeah. so much that I don't know how to do yet. It's so cool. There's always more. Yeah. So I'm I'm actually really excited about uh, presenting there because it will be a chance for me to meet other researchers and find out what they're doing um, and also get their feedback on my work. So it's it's a big deal for me. So let's call out the uh, the, the website for Mercury. You made a tinyurl for us? So it's tinyurl.com slash mercuryproject. Awesome. So, and you can find documentation... Um, it downloads and um, and our research papers there. And this will run on a PC. Yeah, this runs on on Windows, uh, Mac, and Linux. All of the above, huh? So and um, probably other types of Unixes. I don't think we've tried lately. And what is the and and when when you talk about when your website talks about backends. That means this is the code that it generates, right? 
the Mercury compiler can generate uh, two types of C code, low-level and high-level C, which they're just different strategies for getting to the same place. Mm-hmm. Um, it can generate Java and C-sharp code as well. And Erlang? I think it generates Erlang. Um, I can't remember how polished that backend is. Yeah, it says it's in That's beta. That's just a matter of my memory more than the backend itself. Website says it's in beta, so... Okay. One guy out there is going, Oh, damn! <laughs> <laughs> my Erlang! Yeah. So cool. And then native code that compiles to assembler? So that's we do that through the through the low level C backend or through any of the C backends. Um, so we generate uh, the low level code generator uh, gives you code that looks like assembler code. It's abstract machine code for for the Mercury abstract machine, which is then compiled using C and a lot of nasty use of the C preprocessor. Mm. Um, and so then you can you can generate machine code from that. The downloads on the website, when you download the source code for Mercury, already contain pre-compiled C code in there. So you don't need a Mercury compiler installed to install the Mercury compiler. Okay. It seems to me that if you're doing that low-level C or or assembler or the inline assembler that uh, the the C compiler precompiler creates, you're generating one heck of a performant powerhouse of a program. Yeah, um, it's Mercury is pretty efficient. Uh, we beat we beat all the other prologs. Not wow. that Mercury is a prolog, but we beat prolog for performance, and we haven't compared against other languages lately. Uh, I've heard anecdotal reports that Mercury code can get close to the performance of C, and um, I've also heard anecdotal reports that it will beat Java. Hmm. Well, um, we should mention one more thing, which is that your research is funded. That's right. Let's give some props out to the to those who make this possible. So, yeah, I'd like to thank the the uh, Australian government for my uh, Australian Postgraduate Award Scholarship and National ICT Australia for my top-up scholarship. So um, they're who you have to thank for me being able to spend a significant part of my life working on this. That's fantastic. Thanks, thanks to them very much. Yep. Well, do you think you might want to do a DNR TV show on this to to show people exactly what this looks like? Yeah, um, my brain doesn't explode. <laughs> it will definitely be easier with pictures. Okay. It may even be great with a demo. Awesome. Um, Let's so, make that happen. Yeah. Um, if August is okay with you guys, that would be best with me, or late July or something. Absolutely. Paul, is there anything else that you want to say before we uh, before we call it a show? Oh, that's right. I wanted to thank you for inviting me to the show. Oh, yeah, it's our pleasure. Yeah, thank you for your invitation to speak on .NET Rocks. Um, it's been a pleasure speaking with you and having my brain picked about uh, Mercury. Well, I'm sure our listeners really appreciate it, and and uh, 
check the website, the Dotnet Rocks website, because people do leave comments and they may have questions for you. Cool. All right, great. All right. Thank you, Paul, and thank you for listening, dear listener. We'll see you next time on Dotnet Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a